Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. My name is Chris Rawl. My second newsletter is up and running. If you have not signed up for it yet, please do. Go to www.chrisrawl.com, click on the subscribe button, put your email in, and every Wednesday morning, you will be receiving a personalized little bit of writing that hopefully will brighten your day and make you laugh and also make you think. So go to chrisrawl.com. Uh, You can also access any episode of this show and other stuff that I've written on that website. If you are not already downloaded to the show, please do that on the podcast platform of your choosing. And now we move on to today's episode where I talk about what works in the regular season and what works in the playoffs are not always the same thing. I'm going to break news right out of the gate. The regular season and the playoffs are not the same thing. Shocking, I know. Uh, The light bulb is going off in everybody's head as they listen to this, my own included. But this is a thing that a lot of us, and I include myself in that, tend to forget every year. As we get swept away and our dreams expand throughout the regular season as we watch all these various teams that maybe didn't have as much expectations upon them, exceed those and throw themselves into the championship hunt. And now we have arrived at playoff time for the NBA and in a couple weeks, the NHL. And it's time to start separating the regular season from the postseason. Now, I like to do this because I think it's interesting and it's also very important for gambling purposes because the skills and the things that are valued in the playoffs, they can be different from the regular season. And you can ride certain things within the regular season to a lot of wins and prop yourself up in a way that come postseason time, you can't because the postseason can be a different beast altogether. Now, I like to think of this in terms of, of something from my own life to kind of help pound this concept home as we enter in the postseason and say, Chris, you got to pay attention to this and you got to think before the playoffs start. So you can place bets that hopefully will not lose you money because the regular season is not the same as the postseason. And I've been very upfront about my amateur golf career, how I love it, how it's something I do every day, all those kinds of things. But there's also been these benchmarks that I've hit over the course of the last almost a decade as my career has gone up and down and up and down and I've progressed and regressed and so on and so forth. I play golf every day. And not every golf round is treated the same by my body and by my brain. There's an importance that comes to getting reps in specific situations. You know, an example I think of, I've told everybody about my very first tournament when I just completely pissed my pants. I was not ready for the moment because it was a completely new situation. A first tournament is different from all these random nine-hole and 18-hole games that I just played out with my friends. It's a different beast. And... The more you play in tournaments, the more you realize, yeah, even within that, there's differences. Uh, I remember a tournament, I was probably a 15 handicap or so at the time, well past my first tournament when I was a 900 handicap. Um, And I was playing in it and, you know, I had the chest puffed out and I, I played in tournaments before. So I'm going, I'm equipped for this and I'm ready. And just for whatever reason, golf has a way of humbling you over and over and over (laughs) So I'm teeing off on the A group and the B group, it's a conglomerate of there's some 
UVU golfers and University of Utah golfers. They're waiting behind me, which for whatever reason, it doesn't matter. These are kids. You know, I'm at the time I'm 30 years old or so. And there's just <laughs> a heightened awareness of your surroundings when you're in a tournament. And so for whatever reason, now I'm on the A group and I'm teeing off first. And this group of people who are much more skilled at the game than I are waiting on me. And there's other people that are just kind of watching. And this tee shot's got water left. It's got water right. The other people in my group, they slap it out there. And now I'm there on the tee and my heart's pounding and I'm trying to control my breathing and I'm thinking, what's, what's going on? I've played golf for years at this point and somehow I'm in this completely unfamiliar situation yet again. So I step up and I skyrocket my driver. I mean, I hit the top tiny portion of the driver face and it goes straight in the air about 50 yards. Stayed in play, thankfully, but I just go, all right, get get through us and, and we'll worry about stuff later. Uh, and looking back on it, I laugh and, and think it's funny. And I realize, again, it's one of those baptism by fire moments I'm always talking about with golf. Just you got to go through it in order to understand it. Now, the postseason in any sport, it's the same thing. And interestingly enough, these emotions and feelings that I have felt within my own golf career, it extends to the highest level. Uh, Scotty Scheffler wins the Masters last week. Just a total runaway. I mean, dump truck the field. Ends up winning only by three because he four putts 18, but it wasn't close. Uh, Cam Smith got it within one, and Scheffler chipped in on hole four. Cam Smith made bogey, and from that point forward, it was pretty much, pretty much gone. Uh, if there was any chance left, it went into the creek on 12 when Cam Smith flared his tee shot into it. But... After the round, Scotty Scheffler, he's talking with reporters and they're asking him, you know, oh yeah, great win. What was, you know, what was it like? And he had a quote about what he was feeling Sunday morning before his final round. He's obviously the last person to tee off. Scotty Scheffler has played a unlimited amounts of golf in his life. He's played high profile events within the last two months. I mean, he'd captured his first, second, and third PGA Tour titles. Phoenix Open, he'd won uh, Arnold Palmer Invitational, won match play, like really good, nice, high-level tournaments playing against the very best players in the world. It's not like it's a foreign thing. And yet he's there. He's got the lead on Sunday. He hasn't teed off yet. And they ask him about what he's feeling. And I want to read a quote from him because I think it really perfectly illustrates, even for the current number one ranked player in the world who has won four times in the last two months, including the most prestigious tournament in golf, he understands that not all golf rounds are created equal. Uh, this comes from Scotty Scheffler talking about Sunday morning. I cried like a baby this morning. I was so stressed out. I didn't know what to do. I was sitting there telling Meredith, his wife, I don't think I'm ready for this. I'm not ready. I don't feel like I'm ready for this kind of stuff. And I just felt overwhelmed, end quote. So that resonated with me deeply because I go, look, <laughs> I think anybody can relate to that feeling. Uh, it's going to come in a different facet of life for most people, but I understand that within golf, there have been times where I'm playing above my head in certain places and why golf is so hard is you're just alone with your thoughts. And there's always a moment where I'm just like, I think I'm kind of faking my way through this because I'm not good enough to shoot the score that I could post if I finish these last six holes well. And as soon as that thought comes into your mind, you're just going to unravel. It's a continual process of fighting it back, fighting it back, focus, 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 and just 
not necessarily suppressing, but being willing to understand I'm going to have a lot of like human emotions that are going to border on the, the vulnerable side of things where I go, I'm probably not cut out for this because I'm feeling all of these things. And part of the challenge of golf and why it feels so great when you can conquer it in a small way is because you got to fight that continually. And when you do, and you're Scotty Scheffler, you win the Masters. So a Sunday round at the Masters is different from a Saturday round at the Masters, is different from a Friday round or a Thursday round, um, is different from going and playing a money game with your friends wherever, right? That's an easy thing to understand, I think, for anybody within the world of golf. So now we start looking across other sports, and I think you can get a sense of, all right, it would make sense, logically speaking, that the regular season and the playoffs, they're not the same thing. It's the exact same sport. It's played similarly, but there are things that clearly separate one from the other. I think back to the divisional round weekend of the NFL playoffs. It's about as good of a weekend as I can ever remember, except for the fact that my Packers lost to the Niners, but you had that. You had the Bengals and the Titans come down to a field goal at the buzzer. You had Buccaneers-Rams come down to a field goal at the buzzer. That huge comeback from the Buccaneers thwarted at the end by Stafford and Cooper Cup and Matt Gay kicking the field goal. And it leads into the Sunday night game, Chiefs and Bills, which I think was kind of a light bulb moment for a lot of football fans in understanding, hmm, there's something very clear about the sport currently. And I think we all already knew it. It's that superstar quarterbacks are the future of the NFL more so than ever before. But I think that was the light bulb moment for a lot of us as we watched a game that was just truly incredible. And two quarterback performances from Pat Mahomes and Josh Allen that were otherworldly. They were as good as the quarterback position can be played from both sides. So they're just exchanging haymakers and bombs and Josh Allen's doing everything and Patrick Mahomes doing everything and Tyree Kill's breaking long stuff and Travis Kelsey is and Gabe Davis has the greatest game of his entire life and Allen's just putting it on the money again, 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 again. And comes down to overtime. Chiefs obviously win. But coming out of that game, a lot of the discourse surrounding it was, A, that game was freaking awesome. But B, how are you going to stay afloat in this league moving forward if you do not have one of the guys under center? Somebody like this. Somebody who when you need to get a bucket, you just give them the ball and say, do what you do. Um, Stafford obviously did that in the Super Bowl, going against Joe Burrow, who is a player who can do that. And you see so much talent at the quarterback position that it's really hard. It's not impossible, but it's hard to say, oh man, Kirk Cousins, he's fine, yeah, but you're kind of behind the eight ball if he's your quarterback compared to one of these guys or Derek Carr or Jimmy Garoppolo or these quarterbacks that are, are reasonable NFL quarterbacks in their own right. And you can win a Super Bowl in the perfect situation with the right breaks. But with so many superstars coming into the league and reaching their primes and some not even entered into it, you watch postseason football and you say, I think you're going to need one of those guys. It's not to say you don't need it in the regular season, but there's a lot of ways to win in the regular season. The Niners are a good example. I mean, they can win in a variety of ways, but in the playoffs, when it comes down to it, you watch Chiefs-Bills and you watch Rams-Niners in the NFC title game and you watch Jimmy Garoppolo in the fourth quarter of that game 
and you really understand, okay, if things are perfect, this team can win. But if you need somebody to get you a bucket, this is not going to work. That's just not who Jimmy Garoppolo is. So that's one way that the NFL postseason separates itself from the regular season, right? Just you stress the quarterback position even more come postseason time. Uh, hockey, hockey is in such a good place as a sport. I wish more people liked it. I wish the NHL just wasn't dumb as hell and understood how to promote a sport that is really enjoyable to watch and has a lot of high-end talent. But there's a lot of separators within that sport, regular season to postseason. As we enter the stretch run, Stanley Cup playoffs start May 3rd. So we're in the last 10-ish games of the regular season. And what I'm applauding and saying, these teams are awesome and this is so fun right now, I'm going to have to kind of shift as we get to May 3rd. There are three teams in particular that I think of for that. And I mentioned them on a, I believe, last show. But Toronto Maple Leafs and the Florida Panthers, and to a lesser degree, the Edmonton Oilers, they all kind of fit the bill of teams that I love watching play hockey, especially in the regular season. I love betting their overs. I love putting them on regardless of the opponent because they play incredibly entertaining, fun hockey. And yet that almost is kind of a detriment come playoff time in a lot of people's eyes because the past of the NHL is not really filled with these run-and-gun style of hockey teams that are just go, 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 let's score six goals and we'll win four series. That's not how the NHL has worked in the past. That may change, but we just haven't seen proof of it. What we've seen is something that I heard mentioned on a podcast this morning. I was listening to a podcast about the Colorado Avalanche. One of the hosts is talking about you need versatility to win four playoff rounds. That's the kind of concept that they were going over, which again is pretty basic, but something that I just think we push to the side as the regular season goes on because that's not as important in the regular season. Versatility, ability to win hockey game in a myriad of ways. What's important in the regular season is just winning and surviving the grind of playing 82 games. And the Leafs and the Panthers have been doing that fantastically. I mean, the Panthers are neck and neck with the Avs for the President's Trophy race. The Leafs have one of the five best records in hockey. The Oilers have been doing it well too. I mean, they're securely in the second spot in the Pacific Division, look like a playoff team. Once we get to the playoffs, it's a different beast. As we know, as Edmonton knows, because they've gotten there. And what we applaud in the regular season, hey, you have two of the 10 most valuable skaters on planet Earth, Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. That's not as valuable in a playoff series. What becomes more prominent is the flip side of that coin. It's that, well, what about your depth? Doesn't kill you as much in the regular season because these two are just, they can drag an entire team to some version of success. But a playoff series is a different story. Uh, teams specifically game plan in a way that they don't necessarily do throughout the regular season, that grind. Have really, really tailored approaches from the opposition. And when your team doesn't have that depth, that versatility, that becomes a lot more of a problem. And, and it works not just from a personnel perspective. It works how you play. The question's hanging over Toronto and Florida. Okay, can you win playing this go-go style of hockey? Maybe, but if you run into a team that does not allow you to play that, what then? That's why I think a lot of people are skeptical about both of these teams. 
because Toronto, can you play a grind out defensive style game? Um, absolutely not. <laughs> can you just sit back and say our goaltender can win us this particular series in the way that uh, Andre Vasilevsky's done the last couple years with Tampa? No, they can't. Florida is asking kind of the same style of questions. Uh, they got a great first pairing with Mackenzie Weger and Aaron Ekblad, who's injured right now, but hopefully back for the playoffs. But their defensive core is not their strength. And who knows what you're getting on any given night from Bobrovsky or Spencer Knight when they're in goal. You need versatility to win four playoff rounds. So I hear that mentioned on this podcast. And again, they're talking about the Avalanche, who just absolutely bamboozled the poor LA Kings on Wednesday night. I'm watching that game just salivating, just drooling all over my shirt, my trousers, because Colorado is, they're going through one of the benchmarks. Think about it in terms of, like I mentioned with golf, you just have to go through these certain things that expand your understanding of situation and what's required of you. For the Avalanche, they've been to the playoffs the last few years, getting bounced in the second round. Last year was their first real season with Stanley Cup aspirations. Um, they lose to Vegas. And last year, throughout the regular season, Colorado wasn't comfortable if they got bumped out of playing their style of hockey. Free-flowing, get our skill out in space, uh, break it out of the defensive zone, our offense starts with our defense. The stuff that is really fun to watch, much like the Leafs and the Panthers. They play different styles, but comes from the same place. Get these talented players in open ice. How you do that, that's up to you. Colorado starts with defensive zone breakouts. And when they were bumped out of that, most notably in the Vegas series, Colorado was very uncomfortable. And I think over last offseason and coming into this season, it was understood whether that starts with Jared Bednar at the top as coach and trickles down the players or what. It's understood, hey, we need to expand our arsenal. And yes, this is our preferred style of play. And if we can do it like we did against the Kings, we will absolutely obliterate who is in front of us. But it's unrealistic to think we could play four consecutive playoff series and play our style of hockey in every single one because we're going to be going against a lot of different teams. Calgary, they play a very different style of hockey. Vegas, they play a different style of hockey. The Edmonton Oilers, the Minnesota Wild, the St. Louis Blues, whoever you run into in the West, there's a lot of different styles of hockey that are played within that conference. So this year, I see a different approach with Colorado, and I see an increased comfortability with different ways of winning. We need Darcy Kemper to go and steal us a game tonight like he did a week ago against Edmonton, 50 saves, win 2-1 in a shootout. All right, cool. We're comfortable doing that because Kemper's been freaking awesome since the calendar turned. We need to play just a little bit more, grind it out, get pucks in the corners, and, and go and forecheck the hell out of the opposition like they've done this season. Uh, yeah, we're comfortable doing that because we've increased the capacity of our roster to do that. Uh, whether it's Gabe Landeskog or an increased willingness from McKinnon and Rantanen at the top to do that, or just the trickle-down effect we've seen throughout the Avalanche's roster where they have a bunch of players who are really good at doing that. Valerian Nachushkin, Nazem Kadri, uh, Arturi Lekkinen. A lot of people that that's kind of their specialty, one of their specialties. So we see a bunch of different ways from Colorado. We see a bunch of different ways. And it's making sense in my mind and why I'm salivating so much is because it might not come to fruition, but I go, the Avalanche are better prepared to win a Stanley Cup this year than they were last year. And I thought they were the Stanley Cup favorite and should have been last year for a reason. But this year, they're starting to lean more into the difference between the regular season and the difference between the playoffs. We need an increased versatility. 
Uh, it, it'll trickle down into lineup decisions. One of the things I'm listening to on that podcast, they're talking about the fourth line. It's just way out in the weeds, hockey stuff, but they're talking about Logan O'Connor versus Nicholas Abe-Kubel. Two hockey players that virtually nobody will know unless you really closely follow the avalanche. But the argument centered around what do each of these players bring in a playoff series? And Logan O'Connor, who has not been playing good hockey for quite some time, he brings more versatility because he plays the penalty kill because he can give you a lift on special teams. And Abe Kubel is more of just, I'm going to play at even strength and he's been playing great right now. He scores two goals in the Kings game. But there's a difference between what is required in the regular season versus what is required in the playoffs. And I liked that they were talking about that because as soon as they said it, I'm going, well, no, I want Abi Kubelin right now. He's playing better in Connors. O'Connor's been pissing me off because he just hasn't been doing anything. But then they're laying out the case and I go, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I actually agree with what you're saying, especially for a team with true Stanley Cup aspirations. Versatility, I mean, it's a big deal. I mentioned Arturi Lekkanen and... I want to mention him specifically because he is quickly becoming my favorite hockey player who is not a superstar. It's a total hockey nerd thing. And I think all hockey nerds love Arturi Lekkanen. And once you get somebody on your team and you watch them day in, day out, you get a much grander sense of them as a player. And as I'm starting to think about the separation between regular season and postseason, there are certain skill sets that translate differently over the course of that gap. And what I've seen from Arturi Lekkanen since the Avs acquired him at the trade deadline for Montreal, it again has me drooling because I go, this is what you need come playoff time. I freaking love this player and I love this skill set. Right now they have him playing with Nichushkin and Okomfort and it's a line that I'm going, this line makes so much sense in the playoffs because Lekkanen, he's as smart as you can find in a hockey player. He's always in the perfect spot. He can shoot, he can pass. He's not a huge scorer, but he's always there. He's the the lubricant, just always there to make sure that the correct hockey play is made. And that's down to the nitty gritty where he's just forechecking the hell out of the opposition as that line has been a, a nightmare for other teams to deal with. And now he's getting reps on the first power play unit because Kadri and Landis Cog are out and he's just, he's greasing the skids. And every time I watch him more and more, I'm going, okay, this player makes so much sense right now in the regular season, uh, but when it's the playoffs and depending upon the matchup, Colorado's going to need to do different things. This is the exact style of player that you need. Now, the star of the Kings game was Kel McCarr, who is, <laughs> I, I'm running out of ways to describe what Kel McCarr does. He's a singular talent that translates across any hockey game. Kel McCarr is going to make you good in the regular season. Kel McCarr is going to make you good in the playoffs. But you watch a game like that Kings-Avs game. You just watch all of the different ways that Kel McCarr affects a game. And you go, holy shit, this guy can do whatever is required. Anything on planet Earth offensively, whether that's breakout zone passes, whether that's skating it out himself and skating through 50 people, whether that's just putting passes right on the tape time and time and time and time again, whether that's shifting and shimming and getting and maneuvering into an open shooting lane and then ripping a shot on net. Kel McCarr's skill set is just, it's as vast as I've ever seen in a player. That includes in his own defensive zone, which kind of gets short shrift because he is so transcendent offensively, but the joys of watching Kel McCarr day in, day out, its it, it almost blows my mind. And as the Avs start to cinch things up and say, okay, it's postseason time, 
what is going to translate across the spectrum from the regular season to the postseason starts at the top. That's why they were cup contenders last year because they have Kel McCarr and Nathan McKinnon, players like that. And those skill sets, they're going to be there regardless of the situation. And once you start flushing that out with a roster of more versatile players and a team that's more willing to play different styles of hockey, you have yourself in a pretty good place. So I mentioned Arturi Lekkonen and kind of that difference between, yeah, in the regular season, this player is valuable, but I understand there's an increase in value when we get to the postseason in a player like that. Uh, that moves us into kind of the reversal of that. Kind of the idea that what works in the regular season and what works in the playoffs, they are not always the same thing. They can be. Kel McCarr, good example. But it doesn't always necessarily line up that easily. Uh, the team that I think about that most encapsulates that is my hometown basketball team, Utah Jazz. They've been going through an identity crisis for multiple years, and it's centered around this particular idea. Just how can we retain what makes us a competitive, good basketball team in the regular season? How can we retain that and amplify it come postseason time? Because they've had a really hard struggle trying to make that work. I mentioned in the NFL playoffs, but it's the same in basketball. It's the same in hockey. Postseason, it's a different beast schematically. Uh, you have your tailored game plans that the other team is bringing at you. They're going to target and they're going to stress your weaknesses. You have really smart staff of individuals whose job it is to do that. They have a bunch of talented players who they can put into position and say, all right, we have seven games to go against this team. And here are all the things that we understand on film that we think we can attack. And the Utah Jazz, the first couple years of Donovan Mitchell's career, again, good competitive basketball team throughout the regular season, got to the playoffs and lost twice to the Houston Rockets the first two seasons. And that was centered around failings on the offensive side of the ball. Because in the regular season, they could survive with defense and locking people down and Mitchell just being the scorer and the creator. But in the playoffs, he was really the only person that the Jazz trusted to do that on the offensive side of the ball. They just weren't that versatile in that manner. And the Rockets were like, all right, we'll just throw everything at Donovan Mitchell on offense, and what are you going to do? And the Jazz couldn't do anything. They bricked a million threes, and they went home both years in non-competitive series. So they start to shift their roster. They say, we want to try and find that middle ground of, we're going to be good in the regular season, offensively and defensively as we've been but we're going to do it in a way that translates to the postseason. So they lean more heavily into offense. They do that through acquisitions and trades and all that kind of stuff. They get Mike Conley. They get Boyan Bogdanovich. They get Jordan Clarkson. They just get these players that are going to amplify what Donovan Mitchell is doing offensively. Now, they were hoping to do that <laughs> in a way that wouldn't create an imbalance the other way, which is what has occurred the last two seasons as they head into their first-round matchup against the Dallas Mavericks where offense has not been the problem two years ago against the Nuggets or last year against the Grizzlies and Clippers. But the defense, which has been successful in the regular season because it's just Rudy Gobert and he's a great team defender in his own right and he can be the backbone of a really good defense and cover up for a lot of weaknesses in the regular season, that's not necessarily true come playoff time if the rest of your roster 
is a bunch of non-versatile, slow-ass defenders, which is what the Jazz are. So Gobert, he bears the brunt of all that criticism because we watch him in the Clippers series trying to guard a corner three and a player at the rim, which is an impossible task for anybody to do. But that starts structurally at the top when Conley and Mitchell and Clarkson and Bogdanovich and all of these other players are just getting turnstiled, turnstiled because they don't have the skills to do that. And the Clippers, even when Kawhi Leonard got injured, Ty Lue and his staff, they're smart people. And they go, all right, let's put the Jazz in a position that is unenviable. Let us target their weakness, which is they don't have any perimeter defenders. So the Jazz might be catching a huge break because as I'm recording this, the Luka Doncic stuff is still up in the air. We know he has a calf sprain or calf strain rather. Um, We know that the gambling lines for the series have swung drastically. Jazz being underdogs to now, depending on the book, minus 300, minus 350. Huge, huge, huge difference between those two things. But the Jazz still need to show that they can play defense and offense in a manner that they can in the regular season the last two years, which they have not been able to necessarily do in the postseason. That's the big question hanging over this team. Can what we do in the regular season work in the postseason? Now, I've been thinking about this because I've, I mean, for obvious reasons, watching the Masters, watching the Avalanche, the playing games for the NBA. Um, it got my mind just firing on this subject because the last thing that I'll mention is I kind of forget this and it takes a game for me to remember, which in this case, it was the Cavaliers against the Nets earlier this week. But the playoffs value and reward certain skills differently and sometimes more so than in the regular season. Why I'm thinking that is Kyrie Irving in that game. And I go, I kind of, it's not that I don't think he's good. It's not that I actually really think Kyrie's an incredible offensive talent and I think he's fun to watch play basketball. But his style of basketball in the regular season, unless it's attached to players like Durant or LeBron, it's just not really going to take you to a lot of wins. He's a singular talent at scoring the basketball. Now, when you put him with the right people, as we saw with LeBron and Cleveland when they won the championship and made it to NBA Finals, or now with Durant as they're trying to keep their head above water in the playoffs, you understand his specific skill, much like Donovan Mitchell with the Jazz, it makes a lot of sense in the postseason. Isolation scoring in that game. I mean, his first half is... a clinic on how to play isolation basketball at the highest level. The Cavs were just powerless to do anything. I felt bad because Kyrie is literally perfect in that half. He does not miss a field goal. And out of the, I can't remember how many he made. I want to say 10 out of 10, maybe he caps it with a buzzer beater at the end of the half, right in the right corner. Out of the double digit field goals he makes, it's probably perfect defense on like over half of them. And it's just, all right, well tip your cap. This kind of offense, it's just going to trump good defense every time. Makes sense in the playoffs. That's why teams will put up with a lot of weird shit from Kyrie Irving because if you have a good team around him, well, that style of scoring can hit one of the biggest three-pointers in the history of the NBA Finals. Maybe the biggest three-pointer. Actually, no, the biggest is Ray Allen, but you get my point. Him hitting that three-pointer over Steph Curry in the 2016 Finals Game 7, I mean, that's Kyrie Irving's skill set on display. There's a bunch of players that once you watch them play more in a postseason setting, that getting those reps starts to make sense more. 
You know, I'm getting pumped up about Arturi Lekkonen. But the play-in game, I'm watching Anthony Edwards with the Timberwolves, and I'm going, this makes sense in the postseason. Your team is going to need to be better. You're probably going to get pounded by Memphis, but how Anthony Edwards plays basketball makes sense in the postseason. Just relentless physicality, a lot of different ways to hurt you offensively, and he's just bringing it, bringing it, bringing it, stressing the opposing defense over and over and over. Even a player like Patrick Beverly, who is annoying as hell, and I just don't really like watching him play basketball, his particular skill set makes more sense in the postseason than it does in the regular season because he's a WWE character and he's under everybody's skin and he whipped that crowd into a frenzy in a way that I think was kind of a key cog for Minnesota as they stormed back against the Clippers and ended up overtaking them in the fourth quarter with this huge run. That's why players like Trey Young and Donovan Mitchell, who I mentioned, you know, their style of basketball it's not going to single-handedly carry you in the regular season. It will help you out for sure, but if you don't have the right style of players around them, it's not going to do a lot for you. But in the postseason, it can do a lot for you if you have the right situation, which this year probably neither of them do, so it's a moot point. But to wrap this all up, I mean, we're getting into the start of the NBA postseason. That begins for real starting Saturday. A couple weeks later, we're going to have the Stanley Cup finals going, or Stanley Cup playoffs. And you're going to start to see this on display. And if you're paying attention, I think you're going to start to understand the differences between regular season and postseason. And hopefully, we're identifying stuff correctly so when we go and gamble out of the gate, it's going to be beneficial to us as we go, that team made sense in the regular season, but do they make sense in the postseason? And then there's going to be other ways where we look at just people who translate better in the postseason than they do in the regular season. I mean, the most easily understood examples of versatility carrying you to championships, you just look at the top of the NBA, you go, LeBron, Giannis, I understand this. You guys are worth your weight in gold in the regular season, but you're worth even more than that in the postseason because the ways that LeBron can take you down, it's every way. It's why I think he's the greatest basketball player of all time. He can destroy you with passing out of the post like he does in the first NBA championship he won against the Thunder. That was the skill that was just on display through those five games. He can destroy you with his jumper and his three-point shooting, which he did the following year against the Spurs. That was the skill that the Spurs wanted to stress. They said, we don't think you can do this. And LeBron said, I can't. And he did. It could just be the all-around Swiss Army knife versatility that he has in the 2016 NBA Finals where he's moving heaven and earth for that team and just saying, all right, I'll score. All right, I'll rebound. All right, I'll pass. All right, I'll play defense. All right, I will do everything because I can because I'm the best player of all time at the peak of my powers. And then his last championship with the Lakers, I think the singular skill that was most prominent that led directly to their championship was I'm going to spearhead this defense. I understand that our strength is playing team defense. We can win a championship if me and Anthony Davis lead the way there and show we're the two superstars, but we're going to buy into what Frank Vogel's doing. And the fact that we got a lot of good, versatile defenders on the outside. Caruso, Caldwell Pope, Kyle Kuzma, a lot of players like that. And so he leans into that, and it's a fourth NBA championship. Giannis last year, I mean, check whatever box you want. The iconic plays from that series, it's, it's kind of you want to snapshot what versatility means and how it carries you to a championship, just go, uh, here's this Giannis block at the rim that swung this game. Here's Giannis catching an alley-oop and dunking it, like the most pivotal moment of this game. 
Here's Giannis drilling all of his free throws and scoring 50 points in a closeout game six. All that makes sense. Makes sense in the regular season. Makes even more sense in the postseason. Because these two players, LeBron, Giannis, a lot of these other people I've listed, they are the perfect encapsulation of the separation between the regular season and the playoffs and how you need versatility to win four playoff rounds. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. Remember, I have a weekly newsletter that comes out on Wednesday mornings. If you are not already subscribed, go to chrisrawl.com, click on the subscribe button, and it will be so. Please enjoy your weekend, and I will talk to you next week.